I'm still glad to be here. <laughs> okay, now you can hear me better. Uh, you notice that they didn't need to put a mic on the bagpipes. <laughs> they work very well inside and especially outside across the glens in Scotland. I, we had the privilege of living in Scotland for five years. And also I would have you note that my only grandson's name is Knox. So um, I have a, a strong Scottish background. I want to begin um, by reading a portion of Psalm 119 that wasn't already read this morning, just the first eight verses of Psalm 119. Um, very appropriate that part of this psalm was read already. As some of you may know, when you read Psalm 119, it's the longest of the psalms, uh, 22 sections, um, and that's not accidental. Uh, it is, if you actually look at it in Hebrew, it's a beautiful thing to look at physically because, and you may not realize this, it goes through the alphabet of the Hebrew alphabet. So the first eight verses all start with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, the second eight verses, all the second letter, and so on down through the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And so by illustrating the completeness and perfection of its topic, it does 176 times tells you about God's Word. Um, and that's, uh, I think that's appropriate that we know that as we just read the first portion of that together. So I'm going to read Psalm 119, verses 1 through 8. Blessed are they whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are they who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. They do nothing wrong. They walk in his ways. You have laid down your precepts that are to be fully obeyed. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. Then I would not be put to shame when I consider all your commands. I will praise you with an upright heart as I learn your righteous laws. I will obey your decrees. Do not utterly forsake me. Let's turn to God in prayer. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for the privilege of having your word in abundance. We thank you that those, fought, those believers so many years ago were willing to die in order that people like us would have your word. We ask now, our gracious God, your blessing upon our study of your word. We ask that you would work by your spirit in our hearts and lives so that we might rejoice that you have spoken. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As was already mentioned, on October 31st, we celebrate 500 years of the Reformation. And as was mentioned, that was actually a period of time that had begun before that uh, in some ways. But we look back to that time because it was like a spark that ignited things. Now, as many of you know, and as was mentioned earlier, there are those five statements which often are used to summarize the Reformation. Sometimes it is referred to as the five solas because back in that day, theology was done in Latin. I am glad it's not true anymore. Uh, so uh, if they'd done it in Greek, that would have been a little better. But um, those five solas, as were mentioned, are that by Christ alone, received by grace alone, through faith alone, to the glory of God alone, 
based upon the scriptures alone. And I want to focus our attention just on that last one this morning about sola scriptura or the scriptures alone. In speaking about that phrase, scriptures alone, it's important that we understand what the reformers meant when that phrase was used. It did not mean that a person would only know one book and ignored everything else that surrounded it, whether the past or the other interpreters of it or any other books. Rather, it's simply a statement that the ultimate or final authority in all matters of doctrine and life is the Bible. Anyone who's read directly the works of the reformers, the major reformers, will find out very quickly that these men were very broadly educated. They wanted to show that they were not coming up with something totally new. They went to great lengths to quote people in the past who said the same things from the Scriptures. It is no coincidence that Martin Luther was an Augustinian monk, and he wanted to show his continuity with Augustine, the great theologian. John Calvin frequently quotes John Chrysostom from the 4th and 5th century, and also looks back strongly to Bernard of Clairvaux in the 12th century. In addition, because the church is defined in Scripture as God's people as a whole, not an institution, but people, then the Reformers would not have said they were starting the church again. Rather, they were saying they were continuing the work of the church according to God's Word and reforming it according to God's Word. Thus, we really do not celebrate 500 years of the church We celebrate at least 2,000 years of the church. And if you understand the Old Testament believers as part of us as well, it goes back to the beginning of time. Now, in thinking about the idea of sola scriptura as not meaning scripture in isolation from either history or other ideas, I want you to think about that for a moment, that topic. How can you really know what God is like? A God who's described in Scripture as one you can neither see nor touch. You're dependent on God revealing himself in the Scriptures. How can you know about Jesus, who is described as being fully human and fully man? Again, you are dependent on the Scriptures. How do you know you're forgiven or can be forgiven or how to be forgiven? Or how, in a broader sense, do you even know your place within this world? For maybe as you think about your own place within this world, you might say, well, what are humans? They're really no different than other mammals or other animals. We're all the same. Maybe the largest of creatures should be in charge of things. Do we have a movement for elephants being in charge? Or perhaps the blue whale? Yet Scripture teaches that only humans are made in the image of God and that they are to have dominion over the rest of creation. Now, you can probably see the way or the pattern I was answering all those questions. And that has to do with our doctrine of Scripture. But let me ask you one more question. How do you know if you have the right doctrine 
of Scripture. Well, you have to go to the Scriptures to get the right doctrine of Scripture. So this morning, I want to examine a variety of passages that talk about the character of Scripture and how we are to receive it. I want you to see what the Bible says about the Bible. And then, as a result of that, I hope it will increase your assurance in the truthfulness and the trustworthiness of the Bible and in your own faith in the Lord Jesus. Now, the first thing I want to point out about Scripture is the necessity of Scripture. All of you are probably familiar, or maybe most of you are probably familiar, with Jesus' temptations recorded for us in Matthew and Luke's Gospel. Well, in Matthew 4.4, recording Jesus' temptation, it is said, Jesus says, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus introduces that quotation with the customary way of speaking, it is written, a reference to the Scriptures. At this point in Jesus' life, as you may remember, he's at the beginning of his ministry, and he's just spent 40 days in the wilderness fasting. And Satan is tempting him to make bread from the stones, something Jesus knows he could do, having made all things from nothing. Yet if you go back to where this quote comes from in Deuteronomy 8, it's actually part of Moses' closing sermons to the people of Israel. And in particular, it's reminding them of 40 years in the wilderness and their wanderings there. Moses is reminding the people that they did not fully obey God. They did not trust God for his provision They grumbled at what God did for them. But now Jesus succeeds where where the people listening to Moses had failed. Jesus, in perfect obedience, recognizes that man does not live by bread alone. But the phrase I want you to focus on especially, what do we live by? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It's necessary for life. That is what Jesus says. And since this quote is found both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, we can see that this is true for all time. In fact, even if you go back to the very opening chapters of Genesis, the very first few chapters there, and read about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, often we don't think about it, but they needed God's word even before the fall. They didn't know their position. Can you imagine? You just place there and you go, that's an elephant. That's a big elephant. I'm leaving. Okay, it just wouldn't work. But God goes, okay, Adam and Eve, you're in charge. You're responsible to me for this whole creation, all the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the animals on the ground, and the land itself. They needed God's word to understand their position, even before the fall. But then Scripture says when we have fallen into sin, not only are we ignorant as Adam and Eve were originally, we're now deaf and blind. 
We do not see. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. So even more so, we need God's revelation to explain to us what we are to do, how we are to live. Again, Scripture speaks, for example, in Isaiah 45 of God being invisible. How can you ever know such a God unless he reveals himself? And how can you be sure about his revelation unless he gives it in some very concrete form that can be examined again and again? You see, it's to our great advantage that God in his wisdom gave us the scriptures and that they are written down. Some people see that as a disadvantage, but it's an advantage. If something's written down, you can always go back and check on it. You can read it again and again and again. Now, I want you to imagine that when I got married, which happened 39 and a half years ago, um, I told my wife I loved her. But imagine that I never told that to her again. Now, that wouldn't make my first statement necessarily untrue if I never told her again, but it might make her question whether I really still loved her. Yet by telling her that over and over again and writing it down on cards and in letters, she can be assured of my abiding love. Well, in that same sort of way, God's written revelation of himself reminds us of what he has said. We can go back again and again and read it so that we may be certain and assured. And the scriptures say this same sort of thing. When you read the introductory words to Luke's gospel, for example, as he addresses his book to a man named Theophilus, he says the reason he's writing so that you may be certain of the things you have been taught. You see, my brothers and sisters in Christ, the whole pattern of spirituality found in the Bible is a spirituality that recognizes the necessity of God revealing himself in his word. This is true for the beginning of the Christian life, hearing the first message about Jesus and putting your trust in him. It's true throughout your life as you seek to live for him and for his glory. And it's true at the end of your life as you hold firmly onto his promises for the future. That pattern of spirituality could be expressed in a verse like Deuteronomy 29, 29, where it says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may follow all the words of this law. The regular pattern of spirituality presented in the Bible is a life based on God's revelation of himself and his will in the scriptures. So we've seen, first of all, the necessity of the scriptures. The second thing I'd have you see about the character of the scriptures is the sufficiency of the scriptures. Now, the concept of sufficiency of the scriptures needs to also be defined carefully. This idea is not saying the Bible speaks about all topics exhaustively, or all topics specifically. As if my, if my car mechanic knows John 3.16, I don't have to worry if he's ever studied engines. Uh, I hope he knows more than that. I hope he knows that too, though. 
Now, I, I sometimes get concerned in our modern world, in our modern church, when people take passages and they say it speaks directly to our time. And I'm not saying it doesn't speak to our time. But they ignore how it was speaking to the people back then. As if only we could understand it and they could not. And now we have this scripture which fits us and us alone. We need to go back and see what it said to them first before we jump to say what difference does it make to us. And so I'm not saying with the doctrine of the sufficiency of scripture, it gives us all we want to know, but it does give us all we need to know about God, about ourselves, and about our relationship to him and how we are to live for him. Now, believe it or not, this was a real issue at the time of the Reformation. Did the Bible really give sufficient information about our relationship to God, or do we need it supplemented by someone or something else? Now, again, I want us to get our doctrine from Scripture, even our doctrine of Scripture. And I want to read to you John 20, verses 30 and 31. There we read, Jesus did many other miracles in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, if you were to read a variety of commentaries on the Gospel of John, and you were to come to this section where they explain it, nearly all the commentaries I have looked at in regard to this would say, this is John's purpose statement. He's telling you why he wrote his Gospel of John. It's not talking about everything in the Bible. It's talking about the Gospel of John in particular. But what I would ask you is, did John succeed with that purpose statement or fail at that purpose statement? Because if you say, for example, that, well, we've got to have more information than the gospel of John gives us in order to be saved, you're saying that the words of Scripture failed right from the beginning in the purpose statement for this particular book. Now, that doesn't mean John's gospel covers all bits of theology, but it does cover that bit of theology very clearly, and that's why he wrote it, so that you might believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and have life in his name. And so you need this book, and it's sufficient to tell you how you are to come before God. You have sufficient information in how to get life. Now, a second aspect concerning the sufficiency of Scripture, has to do with whether we have the complete faith. And again, I want to read another verse. In Jude 1.3, it says, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. Now, Jude is writing in the first century. And he can say, in the first century, the faith has once for all time been entrusted to the saints. The apostles in the early church were very concerned that the message of the gospel would never be changed. They believed, as Jude says, it had already been delivered. 
Paul says basically the same kind of idea in Galatians chapter 1 where he says, But if even we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally again condemned. And just in the next chapter, Paul will say, when he went to visit the other apostles in Jerusalem, they added nothing to my message. Now, why I'm stressing this is that if any individual or group comes along and says, well, you, have, you know, the Bible's pretty good, but you, you need something more. You've got to have these other doctrines. You've got to have these other books. You've got to have these other ideas. They have directly contradicted what the Bible says about itself. Now, I don't mean this just to be a critique of those who are tempted to add more, but I think this is also very critical for your own spiritual well-being. For if you have to ask that question, is there something critical? Is there something essential that I, that I may have missed? You can never be certain about your relationship with God. You can never have any assurance that you are in a right relationship with God. You can never have the peace and rest which the New Testament promises for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so this issue is not just something out there for denominations and groups and cults to listen to. It's something you need to understand for your own heart and your own life. Because there is no assurance that he is mine and I am his, if there's something you might have missed. Then you could not have a statement like I said in 1 John 5.13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Therefore, my friends, I would have you see the necessity of the Scriptures, the sufficiency of the Scriptures, and I also would have you see the efficacy of the Scriptures. The Bible speaks about the power of God's Word. We've had some verses already this morning that have alluded to that same kind of idea. This is true from the very beginning of Scripture right through the whole of the Bible. I mean, think about Genesis chapter 1. If you don't agree on anything else, you should see one thing. It says, and God spoke, and God spoke. And God spoke. All right? How was this world created? God spoke. Now, that doesn't give us all the details, but it does tell you the origin of it. And the Apostle John, in talking, I think, reflecting on these verses from Genesis 1, says those very memorable verses at the beginning of his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. God's word is the creative power of God. Furthermore, the power of God's word or its efficacy is not only seen in the beginning of all things as if God just did it and then left town. It's seen as well throughout time. Already we've had the verses mentioned from Isaiah 55 that as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, 
so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater. So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. God's word continues to accomplish his purposes. But what I especially want to point out to you this morning is the efficacy or the power of God's word in your own life. Paul, in defending his ministry and message at Thessalonica, said these words in 1 Thessalonians 2.13. And we also thank God continually, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. Now, Paul can identify his words with God's word. He says, as it actually is, the word of God. Peter, in talking about the apostle Paul in 2 Peter chapter 3, can say of Paul's letters that people do things to them as they do the other scriptures, equating Paul's letter with the Old Testament scriptures. The writer to the Hebrews identifies Old Testament words as being the words not just of human authors, oh, they are of human authors, but also of the Holy Spirit. Yet also what I didn't have you noticed from that passage in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul not just identifies his words with God's words, he also says they are still at work in you. Thus you can see why even in relatively recent years, there have been many countries around the world that have forbidden the coming of God's word, whether it be communist countries in the past or whether it be Muslim countries today. They don't want the Bible being brought in at all. They don't want it published. Why? It's powerful. It changes people. People read it and something happens. And we need to realize that efficacy, that power of God's word. But as was mentioned earlier this morning, God's word will accomplish his purposes. But are you making use of that word in your life? Do you regularly read the Bible? Do you study it? Have you got a grasp of the scriptures as a whole, able to tell the story from beginning to end and see how it all fits together? Are you firmly grounded in God's way of looking at history so that you might not be just flung around by modern ideas of where history might be going or not going? If you are a parent, is your first concern to teach your children the scriptures? Does it fill your conversation? Oh, I don't mean you have to just quote the Bible verse to them and say, okay, that's, you know, Matthew 3.17 or something like that. But it should so fill your mind and heart that all that you say and do is a reflection of those scriptures. So that as Deuteronomy says, what are you supposed to do with this law in reference to your children? What are you to talk with them as you walk along the way, as you lie down, as you stand up, And as you sit down, it's to fill your life and to fill theirs as well. 
I could go on, but I think you get the point. If you really see the scriptures as powerful, as efficacious, they need to fill your heart and mind. Now, I want to make one more brief point. We've seen already the necessity of the scriptures, the sufficiency of the scriptures, the efficacy of the scriptures. And finally, I would have you see the identity of the scriptures. One of the debates that arose out of the Reformation was a slightly different idea of what is to be included in the Bible. Now, notice I said arose out of the Reformation. This topic had not always been fully examined before. And if you go back into the Middle Ages and read various read the various Christians from the Middle Ages, sometimes they will quote some other books that are not in our Bible. And they'll quote them as Scripture. And so at the time of the Reformation, this debate came up. Well, how do I know which books belong in the canon? Which books are supposed to be there and which ones aren't? And you need to know that the Roman Catholic Church, which would have a slight disagreement with us on this point, did not officially recognize the books called the deuterocanonical books or the apocryphal books, depending on which term you use. They did not recognize those books officially as canon till almost 30 years after the Reformation began. It wasn't until the Council of Trent in 1546 when they recognized them officially as canon. But the I don't want to overstress this because, you know, if you're from a Roman Catholic background or you have Roman Catholic friends, the vast majority of the Bible we agree on, all right? The 39 books of our Old Testament, they have all 39. The 27 books of the New Testament, we agree on that those are God's Word. But they have a few extra in the Old Testament as well. What you need to realize in studying this is that when you go back to the early church, when they actually made lists of the books of the Bible, they never included these extra books in the early church. If you go back and look at these early books, they're all Jewish books from the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament, these apocryphal or deuterocanonical books, and they're recognized as Jewish literature. But the Jews did not accept them then or since ever as part of the authoritative canon. They don't deny that they're they're books, but they're not on the level of Scripture. They have never been accepted by the Jews as an authority. In addition, you need to read what these books say about themselves and what Scripture says about itself. Now, I'm not going to go through every every one of them, but never in the books added in the Roman Catholic canon do they say, Thus says the Lord, or these are inspired by the Lord, or these books were given by the Lord. Two of the largest books in that, can, that extra canon are First and Second Maccabees. And I want you to read, I want to read just a couple brief quotes or statements from them. In First Maccabees, it says three different times that prophecy had ceased. Now think about the implications of that. The writer is writing and says prophecy has ceased. What are the Old Testament scriptures? They're the words 
of the prophets, from Moses right through Malachi. Prophecy hadn't ceased when they were written, but the writer himself of 1 Maccabee says prophecy has ceased. The writer of 2 Maccabee ends with the words that says, if you think this writing is mediocre or poorly done, I've done the best I could. That's what he ends with. Now, what I want to show you is those writers were not cutting down Scripture. They were talking about their own writings. They didn't view their writings as bad or evil, and I don't view their writings as bad or evil. I don't necessarily agree with everything in them, but they're not bad or evil books. But they were never meant as Scripture. When you read the prophets, almost always they go, thus says the Lord. Or they say, I received an oracle from the Lord. Or the word of the Lord came to me. There's an explicit acknowledgement of them being God-breathed. You need to know that Jesus and the apostles, in terms of the New Testament, never quote the apocryphal books and never attribute them as Scripture. When they talk about the Scriptures, there was no debate between Jesus and his Jewish uh, counterparts. They just disagreed on what they said. But they did not disagree on which books were there. And so you need to know which books that you can come to and go, thus says the Lord. Which books are there to assure you and encourage you to be a firm basis for your life and your hope. That's why you must understand the identity of the books that are the Word of God. Now, my brothers and sisters in Christ, in many ways we are the most blessed people in history when you consider the Bible. Most of you, whether electronically or in hard copy, have more than one translation. In fact, we sometimes get so lost that we can criticize each other's translations, which is kind of a bizarre idea, when most people groups in the world are thrilled to have one translation. We've got dozens of them, and probably next week we'll have two dozen of them. Uh, we just kind of mobile. But you know what? If you read those versions, except the ones that come through the cults, they all have the same message. They tell you of the same Jesus. They tell you you must trust in him and in him alone. And yet, in our culture, with this abundance of God's word, I think we actually are going into an age of ignorance. Fewer and fewer people know what the Bible says. And often that is true in the church as well. And therefore, I would say to you, are you making use of your Bible? Are you learning it, even memorizing portions? Are you studying the big picture as well as the more narrow picture? And secondly, are you making it available to others as well? Let us close in prayer. Our gracious God in heaven, we thank you that you have given us a sure and certain word. We thank you that you and your wisdom inscripturated it so that we could read it again and again. Father, we would ask that you would stir our hearts to renew our effort to learn from you, to live 
for you according to your word and to rejoice that you have not remained hidden but have revealed yourself most especially in your son but as well in your written word. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.